Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. It is practically impossible for human beings to consider any question without worrying about what's in it for them. Unfortunately, or fortunately for us, the Lord's teaching in Matthew disallows this question. Jesus blows past the many anxious and self-involved human questions to posit the post-apocalyptic divine premise of Genesis. Everything created is already returning to the dust. Based on this premise, there is only one question. Is there anything that does not pass away? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 1 to 3. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 370 of the Bible as Literature podcast. It is so difficult for individuals who are caught up in worldly concerns to grapple with the teaching, the proclamation of the destruction of the works of men's hands. When Jesus threatens the destruction of the temple or the destruction of human infrastructure, our first tendency as people listening in on the story, and certainly the inclination of the characters in the story, is to worry about what this destruction means for them because we still do not accept or understand that the Bible is post-apocalyptic. It is presenting you a teaching that doesn't care what's going to happen because it's not a part of your story. This is such a difficult thing for people to unpack. We read a biblical text that deals with destruction, and then we pick up the New York Times to see when the destruction is going to happen, and we miss the point that ultimately Scripture is unimpressed with anything historical. And the very fact that we're picking up the newspaper proves that we don't understand what Jesus is teaching when he says, not one stone will be left upon another. It's not a prediction. It's almost like a description of how biology works. (laughs) I don't know what else to say, Richard. As biological beings, we read stuff through our biology. And scripture is always a challenge that there's another story besides your biological story. I mean, scripture challenges us to read the news through the lens of scripture. But what we do, in fact, is we read scripture through the lens of the news. And that makes all the difference. We take our news, our story, our biology as the reference point, and then we use that as a way of reading Scripture. So when we read Scripture and we say, 
it doesn't make sense or I don't understand it or there's a point missing or something, that's because the Bible is challenging us. That's what I used to tell my students. I said, if the scripture is hard to read, doesn't necessarily mean there's something wrong with you, i.e. you're dumb or something. Doesn't mean there's something wrong with scripture, that scripture is just like fantastical or impossible. It means that it's challenging you. It means it's difficult for you. So how do you confront that difficulty? And what it means for me is that I have to read it and I have to ask the question and I have to be honest. I have to say, why is this hard for me? Why is this hard for me to understand? And I have to be honest and say, what is going on in the passage here? I mean, you and I, Father, we talk about all the time, you know, and it matters that Jesus says one thing to Pharisees and another thing to Sadducees. Those things aren't just thrown in there. We have to ask the question then, why is it the Pharisees and one thing the Sadducees? Now, as an American of the 21st century, I can say, I don't know the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee. They sound the same to me, so it probably doesn't matter, right? That's how I read Scripture through my experience. But if I want to read my experience through the lens of Scripture, then I say, hmm, Scripture seems to make a difference. Therefore, I need to figure out what this difference is. It's hard. It's not obvious. But I need to take the time to understand what the difference is. When you read Moby Dick, you don't say, well, that doesn't make any sense. That couldn't happen. I'm like, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's Melville's book, not yours. If Melville says it happened, it happened. If you don't like the book, fine, stop reading. But you can't challenge Melville and say he wrote a bad book. Don't read the book. Really, the challenge is reading the Scripture according to what Scripture is saying. And Scripture lays out history. And it doesn't mention Richard or Benton or Mark or Bulos. It doesn't mention these people. You and I were, at best, secondary the scripture and its story is primary. So even a dumb disciple in the story is more important than Richard Benton, the reader of the story. The proclamation of the destruction of the temple is the proclamation of the crucifixion. And we repeatedly make the mistake hearing this teaching as something that applies to our suffering or our misfortune. This is why people talk about carrying their cross and whatever adversity they face in their life. It's a misreading of the text. It's not correct. The destruction of the temple and the crucifixion teach us what we already hear in Genesis, that we are afar min afar. Everything is dust to dust. If Jesus proclaims to you, this is dust, and you start worrying about when it's going to crumble and what that means for you, that means you haven't accepted that you are dust. And that is the interest of the story. Because once you realize that you are dust, you conduct yourself in a different way from a different perspective, the post-apocalyptic perspective. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Jesus is walking away. He doesn't care about the temple. He conquered it. He's moving on. And they're trying to pull him back to look at the temple. It's a bit like that story of Lot. Look back. Jesus doesn't want to look back because all that is there is destruction. How 
when Jesus is walking away from something that is judged, how is it that the disciples are asking him to look back? The Lord warned the wife of Lot not to look back at the destruction wrought by his judgment. This whole time that they've been in Jerusalem, Jesus has been upturning everything. He was upturning the tables and the sacrificial system. He was upturning the logic of the Pharisees. He was upturning the concept of the resurrection and the Messiah for people, even on what are righteous actions and what the teaching should be. Jesus has spent his entire time in Jerusalem turning everything upside down. He was there to show what it means to be part of this apocalyptic story. This is what the apocalyptic story is going to look like. This is how we use Scripture to understand our current situation, as opposed to the other way around. And where do the disciples go next for a reference point? They point at the buildings of the temple. They don't show him the temple. They don't point at the temple. They point at the buildings of the temple. Ikodomas tu yeru. Why didn't it just say they looked at the temple? It's the structures of the temple. And what has Jesus been doing? He's been trying to dismantle these structures. And then the disciples are like, wow, look at those structures. <laughs> this is a problem because, again, the disciples are not understanding what Jesus is trying to teach. Jesus comes to Sodom, judges Sodom, is walking away from Sodom, excuse me, Jerusalem, to go about his business, and his disciples try to slow him down to make him look back at all the beautiful buildings in Sodom, excuse me, Jerusalem. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. We must hear this, not as a fortune cookie, but as a statement of fact, in everything in this life, as a human being who is dust from dust passing away, everything we set out to do, everything you or I set out to do, is doomed from the moment we start. This is not a prediction. This is not a negative statement. This is a statement of how things work in the biological world. Everything is passing away. I love that famous saying attributed to Father Alexander Schmemann that the earth is a whirling graveyard. It's absolutely correct. And it's not a grim statement. It's just how things work. The frustration here is that Jesus is operating on the basis of what really counts, which is understood and determined on the basis of how things really work. And he is placing his faith in something that isn't dust from dust. And the disciples are still interested in dust. They might as well be pillars of salt if that's all they're interested in. They themselves are going to pass away with the buildings. And so he turns and he says, look, people, hear what I'm trying to tell you. Of course, these buildings are going to be destroyed because all buildings crumble. And I'm going to be executed so that you get the message. 
to put your faith and your trust in something that doesn't crumble. And of course, they don't get the message, Richard. They immediately try to do their calculus. What does this mean for me? Which is what everybody does. It doesn't mean anything for you. It's how things work. The swirling graveyard, it's such an important concept to think about because one thing I learned from Father Paul Tarazi is it's a mistake to talk about my life and your life and our life. There's just life, and you happen to be participating in it. Inside the earth are the graves of my father and my father's father and his father and his father, and it's full of these graves. And soon enough, it will contain my grave. Life continues. Just imagine Jesus comes to St. Elizabeth, and we say, look how beautiful St. Elizabeth is. We've got this parish in this beautiful neighborhood. we got this dome that we imported from Ukraine. It's a landmark. And what we're doing for the neighborhood and all the good works that we're doing. And then Jesus says, there shall not be let here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And I'll tell you, we tried this in our building campaign. (laughs) It's hard to include that in your pamphlet raising funds to expand your church building. Every parish council president's job is to talk about the building, but it's also every parish council president's job to know scripture and to read that building through the lens of scripture, not the other way around. Because the historicizer would say, oh yeah, too bad for the temple. Too bad the temple. Yeah, I know Jesus is right. It got torn down. Yeah, too bad for the temple. Instead of understanding the teaching here, which is that, just like you said, Father, everything is from dust. It's going to be dust. And once one stone has fallen on another one, in the ancient world, you know what you did after that? You used those stones to build something else. Jesus has been dismantling every piece of the temple, not just physically, but conceptually. You don't understand the altar. You don't understand the building. You don't understand prayer. You don't understand good works. You don't understand sacrifice. You don't understand mercy. You don't understand God. You don't understand the teaching. The whole thing is a question of control and worship and power. Everyone chooses their master. So we said last week that the proclamation of shepherdism in Scripture— as an escape from the tyranny of kings and cities, is not a teaching to be taken literally as though you can't have an apartment in Manhattan. However, if you are the slave of your costly apartment or the slave of your heavy mortgage, which we use to justify all kinds of sin because we have to pay our bills, if you are controlled by those burdens, then we have a problem. It's not a philosophical debate where you're trying to have Plato's ontological view of forms coupled with Aristotle's endless categorization of everything in his taxonomies so you can pin down whether or not the temple is good or bad. That's not how biblical wisdom works. It's not interested in what a thing is. It's interested in how something functions. We have to keep repeating this. It's not a question of should we build temples. It's a question of who controls you, what is your reference, and what is it you're trying to do? Who is your master? And it's clear already out of the gate that they have the wrong master as their reference 
because they still don't recognize the basic, basic teaching of Genesis that everything is dust to dust from the beginning. And here I love the practice of the Buddhist monks, of the mandala. I think we've mentioned it before on the podcast, Richard, where they make this elaborate, complex, beautiful art. And then once it's complete, they take it and pour it in the river because everything is passing away. This is correct. This is wisdom. This is what it means. It is the knowledge that everything is passing away that sets you free from the tyranny of making church life about your building. It's tyranny. Why would you make the life of the gospel about a building? How could you? It's incompatible. The question is not, is it right or wrong to have a building? The question is, are we doing what God has asked of us in a gospel teaching, in a biblical story that is proclaiming to you shepherdism. The story is teaching you not to need anything, and you're trying to impose on God your need for a building. Just accept that you just want a building because you're a human being who wants to have a place. That's fine, but don't confuse it with the mission. It's a question of priority and functionality. That's the key, Rich. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Tell us, Jesus, who should we vote for? Tell us, Jesus, are we going to get health insurance? Tell us, Jesus, is there going to be a war with Syria? Tell us, Jesus, am I going to lose my job? Tell us, Jesus, what's going to happen to me? Tell us, Jesus, does Caesar look favorably upon our town, or is he going to wipe it out? Tell us, Jesus, are they going to raise taxes? Tell us, Jesus, what's in it for us? What's in it for me? The problem, in a way, isn't even their fear. The problem is that they don't understand what Jesus is talking about. They are not on the same page, and their fear, because they don't trust in Jesus' Father— their fear is transferred to worldly masters, which keeps them from hearing what he's saying. You want a sign? Come on, are we back to signs? The only sign you're going to get is a biblical sign, which means you have to be so immersed in the reality of Scripture that it changes the way you see buildings, and it hasn't happened yet. The signs are there. You can't read them. The disciples clearly missed the point about functionality that Jesus is trying to make here, which is that that temple that you're looking at will become a heap of rocks. And every day you function as one worshiping inside a heap of rocks. You are one to continue your faith in God while your temple is a heap of rocks. This is how you're supposed to function. And then they want to historicize it. When is this going to be? When do we have to start worrying about this, Jesus? <laughs> well, guess what? You have to worry about it now. It means that when I see St. Elizabeth, I have to function as if it's a heap of stones tonight. I don't know if there's going to be liturgy tomorrow because there might not be a building. It might be the tent that folds up and moves along, and I'll just have to follow the pillar of fire. I don't know. But if you know that, Richard, in the next parish council meeting, you won't 
clobber each other over the color of the building. I mean, it's common sense. You fight and you argue over things that pertain to God and everything else you are ambivalent towards. That's how you function as a slave. You only have and make contention over things that pertain to God. That is the meaning of the disrespect for Caesar's coin and effigy. They're passing away. You're making something out of nothing, which proves that you haven't accepted that you yourself are nothing. Afar min afar. This is the beauty of this teaching. It's functional. I don't have to know what day. Because I can say, well, hopefully we're going to have the parish for the next few months because, you know, we're going to be remodeling the bathroom here pretty soon. It'd be a bummer to do that right before Jesus turned it into a heap of stones, you know, that <laughs> we wouldn't get to use the bathroom. I mean, Jesus, let us know when so we can at least budget for this year. <laughs> <laughs> we would change the budget, Jesus. This is exactly the point. Oh, Jesus, if we had known that this was the year that you were going to destroy the building, we wouldn't have invested in the bathroom. <laughs> Oh, no, but here you go. You think? (laughs) (laughs) But here's the point. If I'm functioning according to this teaching that any day now it's going to be a heap of stones, maybe I shouldn't be remodeling the bathroom at all. Maybe I should be using that money to make sure that the teaching is continuing, making sure that we're following the ministry that Jesus would have us follow according to the Scripture. Maybe we would be spending more time learning and teaching this scripture rather than looking for contractors for changing the tile. This is what's so vital about this teaching. I have to function like this today. If I'm the church treasurer, I have to build a budget that takes this into consideration. I have to. I am obligated to function as one under authority, and this is what we have to do. If you have single moms who walk by every day as we do at St. Elizabeth, who come into the church looking for a place to change their baby or to let their child go to the bathroom, you have to ask the question, is this bathroom adequate for their needs? That's a valid question in the gospel. But you can't use their need to justify an opulent bathroom. This is what it means to operate under the pressure of the gospel. You have to always ask the question, in this decision, am I serving God or myself? That's the only question. Are you interested in the bathroom because you want to have a beautiful bathroom? Or are you really concerned, for example, with a single mom walking by the church who needs a place to take care of her child? This is what is meant by functionality. How does the bathroom function? In the end, only God can judge who is beautifying something for their glory and who is serving the neighbor. And there are so many wicked ways in which we can self-justify, which is what we do in church life. We self-justify our million-dollar investment under the guise of serving the gospel. You don't need a million-dollar investment to teach people Hebrew and Greek. Sorry unless you're hiring a faculty of teachers to do so, that's a different matter. Like, let's use our brains a little bit. Well, it's like during this time of COVID, a lot of parishes are panicking. We don't have parishioners coming, and once we reopen, 
they might be out of practice in coming to church and donating money. Christianity is under attack. Oh no, what's going to happen? We might have to close the church. Well, maybe right before you close the church, you should reread Matthew 24. Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. It could come at any time. It could be now. COVID may throw the stones down. You might not have enough money come September to make the budget. You might not be able to pay your mortgage, and it's gone. They'll turn it into apartments or a nightclub or something else. You don't know. Jesus is saying here, this is what's going to happen, but the disciples are like, oh no, but when? What's going to be the sign? Why do they want a sign? First of all, the same reason why everybody wants signs. I'm glad you brought that up, Father. Like, <laughs> what, we're back to signs. Everyone has been asking for a sign. And after Jesus knocked them all down, the last person to ask for a sign is his dang disciples. Now his disciples are asking for a sign. Why do they want a sign? So that they can plan ahead. So that we know when you're coming. You know, if you can give us a little heads up before you come back, then we'll know. So if you could give us a sign at like the end of the fiscal year so that the (laughs) next year we can plan our budget so that, you know, it takes in consideration your second coming. Because that would be really inconvenient. Thanks, Jesus. But what does that mean? It means that you have now segmented God's time into fiscal years. You have read history through a human biological lens. I have to be ready to give this all up. I have to be ready to give my house up. I have to be ready to give my kids' education up. All these things that are precious to me, I have to be ready to give up. Now, like you said, Father, there's not a sin in keeping them, but it always has to be through the lens of Scripture. I do it for the sake of the next generation. I do it for the sake of the needy neighbor. And as long as I not justify myself, but as long as Jesus judges it as righteous on that day, then I'm okay. Look, the measure of a man is not what he does when he knows what the outcome is and he has control over the end and he gets what he wants. The measure of a man is what he does when he's on the Titanic and the ship is sinking. And it doesn't matter in the end what happens because everyone's going to die. That is the true measure of a man that in the end only God can judge because only God can see us from that perspective. It's the test. It's the pirosmos of Matthew, the time of the test when everything is turning to dust. We have a good friend, Richard, at work who retired this week. His last day was just this week. And to the very end, he was attending meetings and helping and contributing and putting in every effort to help his colleagues. He didn't have to. He's retired next week. But he proved to all of us that he's doing his job because it's his duty And he cares about the team and he cares about the work. That is what God is asking of us in the gospel. Do you care about this work? It doesn't matter if the ship is sinking. Do you care about this mission? Then why are you asking me about these buildings that, from the perspective of this teaching and its mission, are already gone? What are we talking about? I heard a wonderful story tragic story about a young man in Kenya who is a doctor taking care of COVID patients, 
And at age 28, he was hospitalized because he contracted COVID, and he had to check himself into the very hospital where he was serving his patients. And he sadly died at such a young age of COVID. And his colleagues say that up until he couldn't speak anymore, he was asking about his patients. He did not need a sign. He functioned as a doctor under judgment. He had a calling. He had a job to do. He had a vocation, which was to take care of his patients. And whether he is able-bodied or if he's in bed with COVID, he's still a slave, a servant to God as a doctor, and he still has a duty to do. This is what Jesus is trying to portray to anyone who will listen, Pharisee, Sadducee, or disciple. This is all coming to an end, but you do your duty till the end. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.